Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today in Raise the Line, I'm really privileged to be joined by Rashika Fernandez-Poulet, who's the co-founder and CEO of Iora Health. He also serves on the staff at the Massachusetts General Hospital, on the faculty of Harvard Medical School, and on the boards of Families USA and the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care. Iora Health incorporates team-based care that puts the patient first, as well as a payment system that is based on care, not billing codes and technology. Iora's primary care teams, which include a dedicated advocate for each patient, work together to treat the whole person. And before we get started, I'd also like to thank our advisor, Peter Frischoff, for the introduction. So Roshika, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what led to your interest in pursuing a career in medicine and then improving healthcare? Sure. I'm a primary care doctor born in a place called Sri Lanka. We moved to this country when I was about two and a half years old. I have a dad who's a doc, but actually these days, even back then, that probably is a negative correlator that many dads who are doctors tell their kids, you should think twice before doing it. And I really felt like this was a great career where you can do the right thing and help people, you know, and you could economically not be destitute and you could use science and use people skills. And uh, it seemed like a really great thing to do. What happened though, is I got into medicine and started seeing patients and realized what a disaster our medical system is, right? We have great science. We have really great people. We have great intentions, but the way we've organized it is a disaster. And that's what led me on my career of continuing to practice medicine, but trying to fix the system at the same time. Yeah, and I'm obviously quite familiar with the Iora Health model, just because I've been interested in healthcare economics for a while. And also just recently, we had Vivian Lee on the RaiseLine podcast, and she speaks very, she writes very articulately and in praise of the work that you and Iora have done. But for our audience, would you mind just giving them an overview of how you started the company, kind of the scale, and then what exactly makes it different beyond what I said in the, in the bio? Sure. So about 17 years ago, I had spent much of my career. So again, it's not a secret that healthcare doesn't work very well. I think what virtually everyone else is doing, what I call the incremental change model, is take an existing practice and tweak it a little, you know, change a little IT platform, a little, uh, you know, quality improvement project, et cetera, add some email, add a little technology. And I think the core of IOR from 17 years ago was maybe we ought to just start over. Maybe the system is rotten to the core. And in general, I think what that is, is that we have built the system in this country as a series of transactions, document code, bill next. You feel that as a doctor being a hamster on a wheel, you feel that as a patient being a widget on a line. I think we said, what if we actually tore down the system and started over and built it on relationships and not transactions? Like last I checked, that's what heals people. But once you start pulling in that thread, it, it, it unraveled a whole lot of things. You need a different payment model, a different space design, a different technology platform, a different process, et cetera. And so that's what we built. It's taken us 16 years. So we start, I started with a company called Renaissance Health. We started building a little one-off practice in Arlington. We gradually scaled it. We're now 47 practices in 10 different markets across the country. Really the core, again, is, is we call it high-impact relationship-based care. It lets rebuild the system on that basis. And so we're, by and large, in what was called full-risk value-based care models. So we don't do fee-for-service. It's the wrong way to pay for primary care. We build new practices in the ground up. We don't also try and do fee-for-service. This is all we do. We serve largely Medicare Advantage insurers and patients on Medicare Advantage because we can get these full risk models, but, but also do a little bit of work in self-insured employers and a little bit around the edges on retail. But in general, we're, we, most of our growth is in Medicare Advantage. We're really a robust team-based care model, not just doctors, but people we call health coaches from the community, speak the language of the people they serve, help patients 
execute on the plan, integrated behavioral health. We huddle every morning. We email and text and do video chats. We proactively reach out and not just reactive. We have groups where people get together virtually and in person. You know, it's all a little different than typical healthcare. It's completely different. We build our own EHR. The typical stuff out there, the Epics and Cerners and Pick Your Flavor are built to document code and bill hire. They're cash registers. They're not really clinical programs. So we built our own, uh, built a different culture. Again, sort of it's bold, it's crazy, but it works, by the way. And that's what we've been doing. Totally. It makes sense that there's so much innovation that you've had to bring into it because you wanted to imagine from the ground up, as you mentioned. You mentioned EHRs. Uh, I would like to double click on that a bit. Can you tell us about like your own electronic medical records you guys created? What makes it different? And then Peter wanted me specifically to ask you about it being fire compatible and making sure there's, you know, I don't know if it's open notes, but making sure it's visible by the patients as well. Yeah, so, so we call it chirp. So an IOR is a bird from Sri Lanka. And so what it is, it's not an electronic health record, though it serves as that. It's really a care collaboration platform, right? What it really is, it's a CRM, not an EHR. What we need to do is actually track all the data from our patients and all the various relationships they have, use that to generate knowledge. You know, this guy's not picking up his medications, his diabetes is out of control, and then put those insights into the workflow so that we can collaborate with patients and their families to actually improve it and then track and improve. So it's a completely different thing. We, we, don't, we actually don't care about billing or coding, which is nice. We can focus on actually the improving health. We don't build everything, by the way. If other people build great apps, we snap them in using often Firebase interfaces, by the way, because that's the right way to do it. We don't have, you know, so we use box.com for document management. We use Looker for our data visualization. We use, you know, Dr. First to do e-prescribing. So again, what we're building is an operating system and snap in sort of a lot of apps. We just got PI uh, promoting interoperability certification. So that's been great. From the very beginning, from actually 15 years ago, we have always let our patients see their whole record. I mean, lots of checked, it's their record, <laughs> not, not ours, right? This myth of I, the doctor, will manage your care is silly, right? If you add up all the time your patient will set in front of me, you get like two hours, leaves 8,764 hours they're not with me. But thinking I can manage their health is silly. So of course they need to know what's going on. So from the very beginning, we have let patients, again, 16 years ago, long before open notes, see their, their notes, put information in, it's bilateral. They can put information into the record too. And then that's how we manage things. So we've been doing that for a long, long time. It's it's like obvious, of course, it's the right answer. Totally, yeah. And it, well, I agree with you fully. I mean, we believe at Osmosis completely in the democratization of healthcare knowledge and information because ultimately the patient should know behavior change begins with knowledge and contemplation. It isn't like the sage on the stage or, or priest to communicate to God model, we believe. So you've been innovating in this for a while. Even when I was an undergrad at Harvard, I was hearing about Iora around that time. And it was one of those first like really innovative primary care models that was coming out there. In the last like two, three, four years, we've seen a lot of innovation. On this podcast itself, we've had, you know, Marcus Osborne from Walmart Health. We've had Village MD, ChenMed, CityBlock MD, Carbon. You know, I imagine that you as one of the early pioneers of this innovation are probably in one side very happy with all the disruption occurring. But I'm also curious, how, how do you think Iora stays kind of innovative and is the model that that should expand from more than 10 markets to, you know, 100 markets, if that's what you want to do. Yeah, I mean, so I started this company not to build a company, not to build a medical practice, not even make money. I started for one one reason only, which is the transformation of an industry, right? Instead of studying it and thinking about talking about, let's just do it, let the customers move with their feet, let's kick the existing system in the behind. By the way, all the things I just mentioned about what we do, Huddles, emailing with patients, video chats, you know, letting patients say their whole record, groups of people, proactive, not reactive. None of that's rocket science. 
right? We, we know the right thing to do. We all know the right thing to do. If you think about it a little bit, the problem is the existing system seems unwilling or unable to change for all sorts of reasons we can talk about. And so we're going to make them change, right? And so by the way, if there are competitors or other people trying to do this, we fulfill our mission. It's great. <laughs> so we're happy as a client, right? So, so, and by the way, all of us in this space, we actually like each other. We know each other. We like each other. We talk to each other. We don't think each other is the enemy. By the way, the other dirty little secret if you add up all of us, the Chens and Oak and the people you mentioned, Carbon, you get a few percentage points, right, of the total market, if that, right? It, we are in the early innings here. We're in the first couple innings here. I think there's so much room for a bunch of us to grow. This is a three and a half trillion dollar market. There can be hundreds of winners here. So we're, we're not worried about that. You know, of course, we think we're going to keep innovating. We're going to keep you know, keep doing things that push the envelope, and that's what we do. And we're really happy to have, we we don't really call them competitors, we call them fellow travelers. We have a, a whole lot of fellow travelers. And by the way, the public markets are now paying attention, right? So several of these folks have gone public either through regular S1s or through SPACs, which seems to be the uh, flavor of the day. And that's great too, right? So it, it helps all of it. I think Tide is rising all boats at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. It's a really exciting time. I mean, having follow the digital health space for a long time to see a lot of this stuff come to roost in a very successful way. So COVID has obviously accelerated a lot of things. Virtual care is something we've talked about a lot. One of your fellow mass gen physicians, Joe Vidar, was on the podcast and you know he runs the American Telemedicine Association, as you know. So we had him very early on talking about how telemedicine was changing or being incorporated finally was their moment. What are some of the lasting changes you think COVID's going to have? And then also, can you walk us through like Iora's view on COVID? I, I'd love to hear, you know, from when the pandemic started, Massachusetts, obviously, very hard hit state early on. You know, just anything you can share about how from start to now vaccines, it's impacted Iora's activities. Yeah, no. So obviously, COVID is huge, right? So COVID hit, you know, we were in Massachusetts. We also had practice in Seattle, which was the other sort of epicenter when that this happened. And, you know, at, at various times, Texas, where we have practices, were bad. Atlanta was bad. So, so we equal opportunity. So, so we were in such a good position, right? So we don't get paid fee-for-service. Our revenue didn't change one iota. Uh, we've always been doing telemedicine because we can and we could. We didn't have to invent stuff. We just turned the volume down. Right? So what we did is we decided to keep all of our practices open. So all 47 of them were open. You know, very quickly pivoted to doing 92% of our encounters by telemedicine. But if we need to see you in person, and we, were, we had a very high threshold, we'll see you in person back when we were all petrified of this thing. And then we got better at it, and we figured out PPEs and the like. We spun video up tremendously, because video is a so much better way to do, quote, telemedicine than by phone. Much better relationship, much better, you know, fidelity, et cetera. And I think what's unique about IOR, we, by the way, in the first two weeks of the pandemic, reached out to every one of our patients, literally everyone, one-on-one, by phone, typically, or text and told them, we're here for you, right? We're open. By the way, your red state governor might be telling you you should go to the tattoo parlor in the beach. He doesn't mean you. You're old and sick. You need to stay home. Uh, do you need enough food? Do you have enough food? Do you have enough, you know, whatever. Do you need medicines? We can take care of you. Our COVID infection rate, by the way, we saved lives with half of what it was in the rest of the country, right? Because only 11% of Americans in the first three months of the pandemic heard one word from their doctor, right? So all the news from it is coming from other sources. It's a travesty, right, that that happened. We're their doctor. This is the biggest thing in the century. We should be communicating. That's what we do. What I'm really proud of us, by the way, is that a lot of people, practices did all that, but then they very quickly, as soon as they could, went back to business as usual. And, and, and many, most practices are back to 90% in person. We decided, no, 
Because one way to view pandemics is you hunker down and do what you have to do, but then go back to the way it was. But the other one is this the channel Rahm Emanuel, you know, who channeled Machiavelli, never let a good crisis go to waste, is, you know, we ought to use this as an opportunity to actually pivot our model to the right thing, which I think is an omni-channel delivery model. So we are now doing today. So we do about 19 encounters per patient per year, 19, because that's what it takes to take good care of people. Now, nine, 10 of them, let's call it, nine of them are actually asynchronous. They're emails or text messages. We keep doing that. But of the synchronous ones, the 10, 40%, so four are in-person visits, four are video encounters, and two are phone calls, right? So it's about 40, 40, 20. We think that's the right answer, by the way, that, that we have an omni-channel delivery model that we can serve our patients. If it's the right thing to do to do this encounter in person, by all means come in person. But if you can do it by video, do it by video. And by the way, done by the same group, not a separate group of docs doing telemedicine you've never met before. Certainly a separate company doesn't even know your records. We think that's bad care in general for older, sicker people. Same group of providers, same technology platform, same records omni-channel delivery. That's the future of healthcare, and that's what we're doing and we'll keep doing. That's pretty remarkable. I had no idea. So 19 encounters, which is why, I guess, I mean, traditional EHR is not set up for that kind of thing, but you've built Chirp, which is like a, should we think about it like a Salesforce? Exactly. It's like a CRM where we can track all those encounters and track all the interactions that people have with us, you know, electronically, in person, coming to a group, proactive, reactive. And then uh, the other thing is collecting data from a patient's memory, right? So the what are their labs? Did they go to the hospital or the ER? You know, did they fill their medication? All of those things about our patients and then use it to generate knowledge. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Now that we have the vaccines, two vaccines, at least on the market here in the US, can you tell us a bit about that rollout and how many, how many staff do you have or clinical staff at this point at Iora? Great question. So we have probably about 550 clinical staff, about a hundred of which are docs. The rest are health coaches, OAs, nurses, et cetera. So roughly a little over 500 of them. The rollout's a disaster, as you think you know. We made this that a decision as a country that we're gonna make it decentralized. I'm not sure that was the right decision, by the way. This is, you know, Israel, by the way, made a different decision and it's doing a much better job than we are. So, you know, it's delegated to the states. The states each have different programs and different things. They delegated to the counties. They delegated to the county health departments, which are underfunded and whatever. So it's a disaster when you're a company that's trying to do this. and 47 practices in 10 different states and different places, trying to piece together how do we get vaccines for our teams and staff? How do we you know, get vaccines for our patients? And it's an utter unholy mess. <laughs> We're doing the best we can. We've gotten virtually all of our teams immunized by now, but it was not because of a, this was scrambling, right? It's sort of phone calls, calling in favors, you know, they, they all were high priority for taking care of COVID patients, but yet trying to, you know, the hospitals soaked up all the vaccines, primary care practices are really left out in general. It is not the way to do this, by the way. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, that happened with PPE, where states were bidding against each other. It's pretty remarkable. And hopefully this, you know, we learn as a, as a country what to do for the next pandemic, because clearly there, there will be more pandemics in the future. Now, what do you think are some of the other lasting changes? So obviously, you've used this as an opportunity to change the crisis, terrible thing to waste, as you mentioned what are some of the longer term changes you think the healthcare system will have to make? Do you think this is now going to be like value-based medicine's here to stay, you know, fee for service is out because of the huge financial impact that had on all these hospitals over the past year when they had to shut down all the elective surgeries and whatnot? So certainly I think this telemedicine, quote unquote, you know, is, is here to stay. Patients now have experienced it, just like Zoom. Like we're gonna keep 
doing Zoom. Now, is it the only thing we're going to do? Absolutely not. But, you know, why not do it, right? Keep in touch with friends and family. And we're going to, will part of education be by Zoom? Sure. And will part of medicine be by Zoom? So I think telemedicine now is here to stay. The genie's out of the bottle, right? Patients have gotten used to it. Doctors have gotten used to it, et cetera. I think you're right. This whole idea of value-based care is we, people like us, we've done great. And, you know, the people like Oak and, you know, the folks who you see are doing great. And typical practices are sucking wind, right? It's so hard trying to figure out how to do this in a fee-for-service system. The health systems, I think, are in trouble. You know, you know, health systems for years have had this idea, oh, we put one foot in the dock, one foot on the canoe, a foot in value-based care. I think, well, the, well, the freaking dock's on fire, right? It's time to get in the canoe, <laughs> right? Dock's on I fire. I love that analogy. <laughs> dock's on fire, get in the canoe, right? And I think, I think it's slow. You know, these things are really hard to change. I think what's happening is people like us, who are able to do value-based care are showing them up, right? <laughs> showing them up in terms of our, so eventually this is going to, it, it's going to be slower than people think, but I think what's clear now is the guys and cats. We just outperform. We're getting calls all the time now from existing primary care docs and health systems who are now starting to realize like this big jig is up, right? The way we cannot just try to go back the way we, it was and how do we try and figure this out? That's going to be a hard challenge, by the way. It's going to be a very hard challenge, but, but I think people are beginning to realize it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So a lot of our audience are currently in medical nursing PA school. We work at the over 100 institutions. And a lot of them are, you know, maybe even considering going to their pre-health right now. What advice would you give to them about pursuing careers in healthcare? And then what would your sales pitch to them be about joining Iora, right? Especially because they're hearing about burnout. On one end, we have people like the Fauci effect where more people want to become healthcare workers because they're heroes. It's very fulfilling. But on the other side, it's they're hearing about burnout and suicide and all, all sorts of issues that COVID didn't cause. It just kind of laid bare. Yeah, so, so I continue to think that this is a great way to have a career. It's a great way to, to actually do the right thing and serve a lot of great people and, you know, and actually create value and economically not, you know, have to be destitute, as I mentioned. And I think it's a it's a great career, right? And I think there's so many opportunities to I get to practice medicine to see patients and build a company and do policy work and, you know, do things like this. And I think you can have a really rich, I think, typical healthcare, you know, going and working in typical fee-for-service system, you know, the hamster on the wheel, you need to have a head exam, right? <laughs> I think that the real thing is there are, there are you know, people like Iora, and there, there are more and more people like us, as you mentioned. You mentioned a bunch of names. We are reinventing this, the system. And I think this is a time of unbelievable opportunity where you can be part of the transformation of an industry. And we haven't figured everything out. No one's figured this out. And you can be a part of it. And I think we have created opportunities to do this sort of work and not get burned out. You know, have IT systems that work for you and automate the stuff that's a waste of time and not have payment models that require to do things that don't work and align all these things. The core problem of burnout, I think, in healthcare is, is, is what people call moral injury, right? Is we're asking people to do things that they know in their heart are and I think there are people like us who say, stop doing that. <laughs> it's really simple. Stop doing that. So for instance, we say fee-for-service is the wrong way to pay for primary care. It, it encourages transactional medicine, makes you do more stuff to people. So our thing is stop doing it. We won't take it. It will not allow us to do the work we do. So we will only take payment models that allow us to do this sort of work we do. That allows us to create this. By the way, if little folks like us can do it, like what if the real big institutions actually got the guts to say that? Right. Imagine if, you know, the Mass General, the Brigham, went to all their payers and said, look, 
we think the way you're paying us out doesn't let us do the job that we took our oaths to do. So we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and when you're ready to pay us the right way, we will take your payment. That's what every other business in the world does, by the way, right? The person selling the good or service decides how they want to get paid and they either take it or not. Where in healthcare, we have this, thank you, sir, may I have another and do whatever people say. So I, again, I think there are more and more people like us. You know, I think IR is a great place for people to come. We have a, we have a great team, build a great culture. Right, so one of our first investors and board members was Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos. You know, rest his soul, unfortunately, met with an untimely end. But one thing he taught us is the way to build great companies, the way to change the world is for build great culture. Treat your teams really well. They will treat customers well. That'll engage them and create better outcomes. That'll create great, great economics. And you use that economics to invest in your teams and your patients, right? And I think we forget that in healthcare very often, right? People treat their teams and they get treat, treat their employees like crap. And then they wonder why they treat customers like crap. And they wonder why they have poor outcomes and why they have poor economics, right? So, so I think there are more and more people like us who are, believe in that whole cycle. And I think that's how we build great companies. And that's how we change the world. Absolutely. And, and yeah, sorry again about the past of Tony Shea. He was very influential to us too at Osmosis. We read the book, Delivering Happiness, and based a lot of our cultural values off of a lot of lessons there. And another great, I mean, his name will go down as, as obviously a great in business and, and culture, Herb Kelleher, who started Southwest, he would say, you know, treat your employees best, and then they will treat their customers best, and then that will make the investors happy. Because too many companies are the reverse, investors first, customers next, and then and then employees are kind of like chopped liver. <laughs> yeah, I know we're coming up on time. So my, my last question for you is, is there anything else that you want our audience to know about you, Iora, the healthcare system, or anything else you'd like to share? We're just in the early innings of this. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. We started our, the predecessor company, Renaissance, 2004, so 16 years. And I feel like we've got to see change going on now, right? A lot of the things that, there's a great quote, I think, by Schopenhauer, that first you're ignored, then you're opposed, and then people tell you it's obvious. We've gone through all of that, right? And I think more and more people are now saying, of course, you should be, primary care should be the most important part of healthcare and be the center of the healthcare system. Of course, value-based care is the right thing. Of course, you should use healthcare technology. I, mean, I remember when I started this, there was this argument, should you use computers in healthcare? I was like, you've got to be kidding me, of course. You should use computers in healthcare, right? But, but so I think we've solved, a, we've gotten people over a lot of those humps. COVID has accelerated a lot of these things, right? For better or for worse. So I think it's a really exciting time to go into healthcare and in particular into some of these new model, new model sort of companies like Iora. And I would encourage people to do so. That was some great, great advice and great quote to end on with Schopenhauer quote. Rishka, I'd really like to thank you for not only taking the time to be with us today, but more importantly for the work that you've been doing for, for decades, but specifically the last 15, 16 years, making value-based care such an integral part or really successful part of the healthcare system. I'm very excited to see what the next 16 years will bring. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for the month too. <laughs> You're welcome. And with that, I'm Shiv Rivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.